You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is based on Acts 16. I'll read verses 16 through 18 and verse 25. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners we're listening to them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we have gathered this morning to hear from you. We're so grateful for the gift of music. We're so grateful for the gift of your body and each member of it. Each week as we gather together and I hear my brothers and sisters singing and I hear some of them offer a prayer of thanksgiving and praise and I hear others read the scriptures each and every week, my heart is so encouraged. So we want to thank you for your kindness to us. That is most clearly seen in the gift of your son, Jesus. I pray this morning that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, as we work our way through the inspired text of Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice that Mike read a shorter portion of this text than you have in your bulletin. That is because as I was preparing this week, I thought either uh, this needs to be broken into a couple of sermons or uh, all of you are uh, going to walk out uh, this morning. So we split that up and we'll start walking through this text this morning. As I have interacted with unbelievers throughout my Christian life, I can't tell you how many times I've heard an unbeliever tell me that they, at least from their vantage point, happily rejected the existence of God and the validity of the gospel until they saw a Christian experience profound suffering with a kind of hopeful joy that they had never encountered before. I think of this every time I read something by Johnny Erickson Tata. For those of you who don't know who Johnny is, she is a woman who, through a diving accident, became a quadriplegic when she was 17 years old. 
God met Johnny in her suffering, and over the last 52 years, she has become a wonderful testimony to God's sustaining grace. This past week, I read the following in an article by Johnny. She writes, My quadriplegia constantly clamors for my undivided attention. Empty leg bag. Deal with pain. Arrange for help. Adjust corset. Change wheelchair. Look for access. And grab that handicapped parking spot before someone else does. It's my world. Then again... It is definitively not. My world, my breath, and very being, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. I am not my own. I was bought with the price of God's own blood. Satan hates that. He will do everything he can. Use my wheelchair, my notoriety, ministry, whatever, to focus me away from Christ. To find your identity, worth, and value in anything other than Jesus Christ is to believe that your distinguished career, your prized pet, your parenting skills, your valiant victory over cancer and quadriplegia, or your sin itself makes life more meaningful, rich, or fulfilling. But then Johnny concludes, but Christian... Your identity must never be in things that compete for space in your heart. Don't diminish the price paid for you or minimize God's adoption of you. Only in Christ do we find breathlessly fulfilling joy, peace, and meaning. Friends, why... Why is a testimony like Johnny's such an incredible apologetic for the gospel? It's because when someone suffers or endures hardship and difficulty with joy, those watching are not awed by the one suffering, but they are awed by the object in which the one suffering is finding their joy. In other words, suffering with joy does not glorify the one suffering, but it glorifies and magnifies the source of the sufferer's joy. The onlooker is forced to ask, what is sustaining them? What is their hope? And often they conclude, I want what they have. Let me try to put this again as simply as I can. God is glorified in the life of one of his children when that child reveals Christ as his or her supreme hope and greatest treasure. Brothers and sisters, you and I will magnify God's glory and greatness in the course of our lives as we find our identity in Christ and point others to his supreme value. We will declare 
that Christ is enough. This is what we'll find in our text this morning. And we'll actually see this principle at work in more diverse circumstances than physical suffering alone, though we will see that. As we work our way through this next section in Acts, we will encounter followers of Jesus experiencing confidence, confidence in the face of demonic oppression, joy in the face of profound suffering, and strength in the face of corrupt earthly power. As I mentioned before, we'll look at this over the next two weeks, but we'll begin in verses 16 through 24, where we see confidence in the face of demonic opposition. Look at verse 16 with me again. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So if you were with us last week, you know that they are now headed back to the riverside, to the place of prayer. They're hoping on their way to have gospel conversations, and they meet another woman. But this one is very different than who we met last week. She's very different than Lydia. The text describes this new woman as a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, Luke assumes his readers will be familiar with such terminology and and pagan modes of divination. Unlike the demonic beings in Luke's gospel who made their victims impure and ill, this girl was predicting the future, and by doing so, she was making a group of men a bunch of money. So really, this girl was a slave in two senses, wasn't she? physically and spiritually. She was being used by a group of men for their financial gain, and she was being used by the devil as a mouthpiece for false and satanic prophecy. Friends, please see that this girl is someone who deserves our compassion. She is poor, and she is needy, and she is being used both by the evil one and by evil men, and she desperately needs to be delivered by God's gracious hand. First, we met Lydia, a successful businesswoman who would have been tempted to find her identity, her hope, and her satisfaction in her success. Now we find someone who needs to be delivered just like Lydia needed to be delivered, but in a very different way. Notice how the text describes what she is doing, particularly as it relates to Paul and his team. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, Luke writes, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Now, this was fascinating to me. Notice that this demon-possessed slave girl rightly declares the true identity of Paul and his team, and she rightly identifies the true nature of their mission. In fact, one commentator says this is a strange evangelist. Friends, I think two things are happening here, one positive and one negative. Positively, and we know this from the whole of Scripture, God has a way of taking what Satan intends for evil and using it for his good purposes. Here is a demon-possessed girl that is accurately announcing the identity of missionaries and the nature of their gospel mission. That's a little strange. Negatively, though, the activity of this girl can run the risk of discrediting both the missionaries and their message by associating both with the occult. David Peterson explains that while the content of this girl's message was true on one level, it was also false because it was being proclaimed by someone who did not really know what she was talking about. On her lips, even the assertion that there was a way of salvation could so easily have been interpreted in a polytheistic and pagan fashion. So on the one hand, what this slave girl is saying is true. But on the other hand, the truth is being proclaimed by someone who is being used as a mouthpiece for satanic error and sordid gain. This is not okay. So notice Paul's response, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Here's the picture of what's taking place as Paul and Silas and probably Luke are daily going out in search of gospel conversations like the one they had with Lydia. They either passed by this girl or she came and found them and she began to heckle them. Again, what she's saying is true, but she's an instrument of Satan and he certainly intends to disrupt and deter the spread of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, why... Why is this so concerning? Why, why should we read this and be motivated to think we, we need to be discerning? Well, the devil wants nothing more than to create confusion, not, listen, not by dismissing the truth altogether, but by subtly twisting it or warping it just ever so slightly so that it sounds good, but in the end, it's not the gospel at all. In fact, it is this reality that makes something like the prosperity gospel so dangerous. It takes elements of truth and then so distorts them that it creates another gospel altogether. So, Christian friends, we need to be sober-minded and watchful so that we won't be duped by the crafty confusion the devil throws at us all the time. So, uh, imagine what might be happening in Philippi. You say, how does all this fit together? Imagine 
a scenario that might have been happening in Philippi. A fairly new believer that is meeting with this new church in Lydia's home witnesses the actions of this slave girl. On the one hand, they hear that she has a spirit of divination. But on the other hand, she seems to be getting it right when it comes to Paul's identity and mission. So maybe what she's doing isn't that bad. Maybe it is from God. It's easy for me to understand how someone immature in their faith, new to the faith, might become very confused in a situation like this. And so it reminds me that we need to be careful We need to be deeply rooted in the truth of God's word, able to discern the attacks of the evil one. Back to our text, Paul has had enough, and verse 18 tells us that he became greatly annoyed, which is probably the point that some of you tuned in because you heard me say that the apostle Paul was annoyed with someone, so maybe this will help justify you getting annoyed with someone in your life. It won't. In fact, when we read the word annoyed in verse 18, it might be better to insert grieved. Paul became grieved or deeply disturbed by what was happening. Why? Well, Paul was not grieved by the effect of this girl's actions upon him. He wasn't worried about himself per se. But he was grieved over the confusion her actions were creating for the very people he was trying to reach with the gospel. And I believe he was grieved over the way this girl was being mistreated. As the crowd saw and heard this girl day after day, they, they very well may have begun associating Paul and Silas with the same kind of demonic spirits and works they saw going on in this girl. But I want you to understand that this poor slave girl is not the object or source of Paul's frustration. And I think this is instructive for us. This poor slave girl is not the object or source of Paul's frustration. This is clear in his response. Look at verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The object of Paul's frustration is ultimately the one who opposes the gospel, the great enemy of the Lord Jesus, the one who is using this poor slave girl. Again, I think as we look out at the world around us and we see how the gospel is being twisted and perverted and dismissed, I think this is instructive that our anger and our wrath would burn against the evil one more than it would burn against those he is using, those who desperately need to be delivered and need to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. A 
love how one commentator describes what's happening here. He says, Paul acts as an exorcist with authority to command demonic spirits in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is precisely the kind of display of divine power foretold in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus gathered the 12 and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This is a demonstration of the kingdom of God which has broken into this broken and fallen world. Oh, brothers and sisters, this this is just a glimpse. This is just a glimpse of the power of the risen Christ over everything in the universe. When the demonic spirit is commanded in the name of Jesus to come out of the girl, there was no struggle back and forth. It was never in doubt who would win there was immediate victory. It came out that very hour. You see, Satan can try, right? Satan can try to stop the progress of the gospel in a million different ways. And he may seem to be succeeding at times. But this little snapshot is a wonderful reminder that the evil one cannot stand in victory against the Son of God. This small triumph in Acts 16 is only a foretaste of what is to come. That day when Satan will be rendered powerless forever and Christ will reign in ineffable glory for all eternity. This is just a glimpse of that. Think about what we've just seen in our text. Followers of Jesus with a desire to make Jesus known are experiencing real demonic opposition. But in the face of this hostility, they act in confidence. They don't panic. They aren't overcome with fear. They don't run away. They are confident in their divine calling, but they are more confident in the divine power of Christ. We shouldn't read a text like this, brothers and sisters, and marvel at Paul and Silas as kind of biblical superheroes. No, there is only one hero here, and it's the one in whose name the demon flees. The confidence of Paul and Silas in the face of demonic opposition points us to the object and the source of their confidence. It leads us to marvel at the power of Christ over all evil. These servants of God display confidence in the face of demonic opposition. But notice now that they also exhibit Joy in the face of profound suffering. Friends, do you see the slave owner's response to the deliverance of this girl in verse 19? But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is pure evil. I mentioned before that this poor girl was in slavery twice over. Both the evil one and evil men were using her for their own purposes. And now when God so compassionately delivers her from demonic bondage, the men who owned her and were profiting off of her are irate. One theologian describes what has happened like this. When Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. In their anger. In their anger, these wicked men drag Paul and Silas before the local authorities. And in another act of heinous evil, these men fabricate a lie in order to incite violence against the servants of God. Verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I want you to hear how John Stott describes verses 20 and 21. Stott writes, the accusations of causing a riot and introducing an alien religion were serious. The slave owners were very clever. They not only concealed the real reason for their anger, but they presented a legal charge against the missionaries in terms that appealed to the latent anti-Semitism of the people and their racial pride. And in doing so, they ignited the flames of bigotry. Friends, this is so wicked. This is one of those moments where the text can so grip you that you, you stop and you're, you're floored by what is happening. It explains the reason behind what we read next. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I, I fear that sometimes we read the scriptures as if we are reading a book of fables. I do this far too often, especially a book like Acts. We forget that we're reading about true events 
and real people. Paul and Silas felt real shame as they were stripped naked. And they felt real pain as they were beat by an angry mob. And they must have felt some measure of real fear as they were thrown in prison and bound in chains. In many ways, it's hard for us to imagine a time and place when believers were persecuted so severely for following Jesus and making Him known, and yet stories like this one are unfolding right this moment all over the world. Like Paul and Silas, so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Real people, real beatings, all for the sake of Christ. As I was studying this text during the week, there were times when I stopped and I just prayed for those who are right now experiencing what Paul and Silas experienced in Macedonia so long ago. I prayed. I prayed that God will strengthen my brothers and sisters in the midst of their suffering as they sit in jail cells, separated from their families, as they battle the fear of certain persecution. I pray that God will comfort them and that he will assure them of his presence with them and his love for them. Friends, don't Don't read this like it's a made-up Bible story just put here for our moral instruction or to inspire us to do great things. No, this is a real story of your brothers that went before you. And they were sustained by your God. So that you one day would hear the gospel. Friends, what we encounter in this text and in these verses is profound suffering. But in the face of profound suffering, what do we find? What do we find? Verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Again, this is where we're tempted to go. These are superheroes. No. In the midst of real pain and bound by real shackles, Paul and Silas are singing. While we must not quickly dismiss what is happening here, our our focus, listen, Our focus isn't supposed to be on Paul and Silas. As admirable and worthy of respect as they are, 
we are supposed to see past their praying and their singing to the object of their prayers and their songs. The one they are worshiping is the one who is sustaining them. The one we worship is the one who sustains you in your darkest moments. How can two men who have just been stripped and beaten and thrown in prison now be praying and singing? Well, they must possess something. They must possess something that so transcends their circumstances and dwarfs all earthly pleasures. They, they must possess something of such infinite value that even when everything is taken from them, their freedom, their comfort, their dignity, they still have a reason for hope and joy. It would appear to most onlookers as if these men have nothing left, right? They have nothing left. And yet they are singing. With bruised bodies, shivering in damp, primitive cells, with painful metal shackles rubbing the skin off their legs, they are singing. Brothers and sisters, I imagine the content of their song was something like a song we sometimes sing. I imagine these words or something like them were echoing through the prison. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus is enough, our confidence in the face of evil opposition and our joy in the face of profound suffering will only serve to magnify the worth and majesty of the one who is our supreme treasure. 
it's so important that we embrace this truth, that we run hard after Christ, that we support each other and encourage each other, and we feed our minds with these truths. Why? Why? So in those dark moments, in those times of suffering, just as Josh testified to before, what will come into your mind? It won't be, Josh, you can do this. Just grit your teeth and clench your fists. You can do this. No, this is what will come to your mind. Christ is holding you. Christ is holding you, and he'll never let you go. And that's what people will see, right? That's what they'll see in our suffering. They'll see what is sustaining us so that they won't stand there in awe of us, but in us they will stand in awe of Christ and will say, I want that. I want that. Let's pray.